Got back from Baltimore just in time for Halloween. Hopefully you had an awesome Halloween night or day, since Halloween is either not celebrated at all, or it is celebrated in the early-ass day. But that beats the trend that I had noticed where I didn't see any kids in costumes for a while, but now I'm seeing a pickup, a resurgence of actual kids trick-or-treating, which I think is a really important aspect of our culture, and it's something that should be celebrated and encouraged. And that does not include the COVID year, so don't even start with me. Baltimore was fun. If you want to get a little recap, I got a metric ton of comic book trades because Baltimore is a great con if you want to meet certain creators or if you want to pick up comic books on the cheap. I think all told we got like over $500 worth of trades. But no, I did not spend almost $500 in trades. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about just getting that kind of value from the samplings. Let me give you a little breakdown about what that experience was like. So you want to get a couple of trades, you go over to your half-price bins, and that included a lot of recent trades, like the Hulk Thor crossover Banner of War, which I incidentally bought on Amazon for a little less than full price, but then found for half price. I'm going to ship the other book back to Amazon and save myself a little bundle of cash. Maybe half price isn't your deal. Maybe you're looking to go a little cheaper. Well... You could always go to the $5 trades bins, and there were at least two different retailers that had $5 trades. You're not going to get the most recent trades, but you are going to get a nice assortment of stuff, which included Vertigo trades, Marvel, DC, and then you got the $3 bin trades. That was a recent development. That's something I have not seen before, but there was at least one merchant that had $3 trades, and we're talking at least four to six different long boxes full of different trades that are worth picking up. And let me tell you, that combination of getting the $5, $3, and half-price trades, I walked away with a very heavy supply of comic books. I also finally got to cash in a birthday gift that was gifted to me by my lovely wife Tiffany about two years ago now because she picked up a meet-and-greet signing from Baltimore Comic-Con with Frank Miller. He was unavailable last year, so we got a chance to cash that in this year, so that was a lot of fun and also an ordeal, which maybe we'll get into later on today. But before that... Good morning, this is weather and traffic in Gotham City. The original forecast was 60 degrees with rain, but it's looking more like 32 with heavy snow. Looking ahead, tomorrow's forecast will, of course, consist of cumulus clouds, perfect for signal projection, and we're either in for a cold and wintry or dark and stormy day for Wednesday. Currently, the high is 32 with a low of absolute zero, but considering how traffic's heading, there's a chance we'll end the day with a high of 60 and a low of 52. That's the weather in Gotham, and now traffic. King Street in Gotham's closed off to city-bound traffic at the moment with a five-car smash on Grand Avenue thanks to the Cape Crusaders' pursuit of Mr. Freeze's Ice Road Gang. Delays are pushing back around the Morrison Tram Depot. Diversions will get you on the Mazzuchelli Parkway, but it's a lot heavier than usual. This reporter recommends the commuters take the Aparo Road onto Brayfogel using the Capullo Bypass to Sprang. You could take the Infantino, but it does lead to Miller Crossing, so if you're already that far in, you might as well suck it up with the rest of your fellow commuters on Adams. And that's traffic. Eh, we have fun here. So I read this the other day on Fandom Wire, which is not necessarily the most rock-solid news website you've ever seen, but it does spark a conversation that I've been having since, I guess... Sony got away with making a Venom movie, and then somehow managed to crap out a Morbius movie. And I imagine everybody's been talking about it since No Way Home, when they saw that Andrew Garfield not only enjoyed being Spider-Man again, but also he was great at it, and it reminded everybody how much we loved him as Spider-Man, and how bereft Sony is of a Spider-Man in their universe, and how desperately we all don't want Tom Holland to be in it. So you can see where I'm going with this. Of course, they're saying that Andrew Garfield's Amazing Spider-Man 3 is apparently reportedly under development as last-ditch effort by Sony to bring audiences back to theaters from streaming. That's right, Sony doesn't have their own streaming service and thank god they're not trying to oh that's interesting maybe they should we should start a morbius-esque grassroots movement to convince sony that they own a plethora 
of IPs that warrant a streaming service. They'll spend billions, if not trillions of dollars to try and catch up with Disney+, Plus, HBO Max, Paramount+, Plus, and then inevitably collapse. The heads of Sony, of course, don't actually have much faith in that studio because I remember reading a report, this is going back years ago, they were like, why are we even making movies? <laughs> They're like, we know how to make other things, electronics, and yet we're still spending money hand over fist to make these movies that don't turn a massive profit. This, of course, is pre-Into the Spider-Verse, but we can't keep pointing it into the Spider-Verse every time we want to make a good point about Sony. There's two more coming, we'll see what happens when those two are out. Hell, I think we're going to have a pretty clear picture about whether Into the Spider-Verse is a litmus test for Sony's ability to make something good after the next one comes out. So we'll see you in June, Into the Spider-Verse 2. Anyway, so Andrew Garfield is in talks now. At least there's reported talks about Andrew Garfield maybe reprising his role as Spider-Man, getting his own third chapter in his own original trilogy. I think that's great. Honestly, at this point, it's weird because I remember having a conversation with somebody in the line at the Frank Miller signing in which we were discussing the fact that DC somehow managed to screw up having a multiverse despite it being ingrained in their DNA, and yet Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse has normalized multiverses for everybody. That the Spider-Man character, originally billed as the loner of the Marvel Universe, a character who is always on the periphery, a street-level character, has managed to normalize the concept of multiple dimensions, multiple variants and copies, pave the way for things like Loki and Doctor Strange into the Multiverse of Madness and the entire DC lineup. And the point I was making about DC is simply that Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, etc., they all originally came from their own respective lines. They all came from their own universes. That there is no connective bedrock for the DC universe except for the existence of a multiverse. So there is precedent, certainly a long-standing 100 years long precedent for a multiverse thanks to DC Comics and yet the movies failed to convey or achieve that. Although I think in the wake of something like Joker making a billion dollars, at least the executives got a little less afraid of that concept because they're like, well, I mean, I can keep making billions of dollars by making anything I want. But that's not really from a creative standpoint now, is it? That said, I think audiences can accept if not embrace the idea of there being parallel running Spider-Man franchises. I mean, I think actually DC is probably going to start pushing that concept before we even get an Amazing Spider-Man 3, if in fact we ever get an Amazing Spider-Man 3. Just look at the Batman. I mean, we've got a great franchise in The Batman, and yet there's trepidation about approach and about inclusion. There's rumors that Robert Pattinson has no intention of being part of a franchise. Hell, he has no intention of being part of a multi-picture deal. We're also seeing rumors of Ben Affleck reprising his role as Batman, not just for like a cameo, but for a three-picture deal. So there's rumors flying all over the place. We can't pin any of them down or define whether or not they're legitimate or valid, but we can at least discuss them. And in the case of Amazing Spider-Man 3, I think that not only could it succeed, I think it will succeed if Sony's brave enough to actually do it, because I think we can have concurrently running Spider-Man franchises, and in fact, it would fix a lot of the problems with the Sony multiverse, or with their own Sony Spider-Man-verse, because right now, I can't find anybody who could bother to care about this universe in any significance, because they don't know what they're supposed to be invested in. Are they invested in the villains? Are they invested in the world? Because neither of them are terribly interesting, and the villains are the heroes of these movies. And then we got a little glimpse at what Sony might actually be planning, or at the very least, we got to see the licking chops of the hungry and desperate Sony pictures in the form of a horrible post credit scene in Morbius, where clearly... 
that scene was written by an executive. That was just on a napkin or the result of an angry phone call conversation. And so no effort or creativity went into it. I mean, look at the last two major post credit scenes from Sony. And we had the Tom Hardy as Venom in the MCU and then not in the MCU post credit scenes. And then we got that Vulture Morbius scene, which if there was a contest for worst post credit scene of all time, I'd put that right at the top. The other aspect of the article talks about how Sony's desperate to pull people from streaming to theaters, because I guess that's really where the money lies for Sony Pictures, and particularly for these executives, is getting people to make big box office bank for them. I think at this point, we've swung back to people being in theaters and the normalization of theater-going experiences. I think that the theater-going experience has shifted, and I don't think that COVID is to blame necessarily. I think COVID highlighted a major problem. It showed where the leaks are, but it also only exacerbated an existing problem. And that problem is, why would I spend money to go to a theater to get a streaming experience? Because that's really what like A24 and art house pictures or even just sleepy dramas or mid-budget movies have become. They've become streaming shows and movies. And if we've normalized that being the streaming experience and that the big budget action blockbuster thrill ride is the movie theater experience, that's really, that's where we are. Which actually has me kind of worried about the future of the next trilogy if Tom Holland and everybody signs on board to make a next trilogy for Spider-Man in the MCU. Because really, this is a great opportunity for Spider-Man to actually become the street-level hero that we all know and love. But, again, we're getting off topic. So it looks like Sony's showing their hand. They want people to go to theaters, they want to build their universe, and it looks like they're finally listening to people, at least if we can believe these reports that they are pursuing and maybe locking in Andrew Garfield as the Spider-Man of their interconnected universe. And I think I'd be more open to the idea of a Sony-verse if it were distinctly separate and didn't in any way jeopardize what they're building in the MCU. Because I think the face of the MCU, the future of the MCU, should be Spider-Man. And that's not just because I'm a big Spider-Man fan, but also because Spider-Man is the most marketable character, he's young, he's a great gateway character. Obviously, Marvel knew that years ago when they created Marvel Team-Up and had him team up with a lot of lesser-known or lower-selling tier characters like Hawkeye, Black Widow, Adam Warlock, Namor, etc. Marvel Comics knew that Spider-Man adjacent to other characters helped boost everyone. And then Marvel doesn't have to spin their wheels or try and force a character that might work if you just let them grow on their own into being what might be the next big thing. It's just not fair to those characters, and it's not fair to the audience who's going to experience severe whiplash as a result. No, what you do is you make Tom Holland Spider-Man the face of the MCU. He's your gateway character. He's your Iron Man. You make a solid trilogy about this character and his journey through the Marvel Universe and where he's going in the next phase of his life. And running concurrently, you have the other Spider-Man, the 40-year-old Spider-Man, who is also dealing with Craven the Hunter and Morbius and Venom and Carnage, etc. And by the way, I don't know if I would necessarily elect to have this be the plan, but in a world where Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man on film in perpetuity, and you can't have it any other way, this seems like the best way to go. But at the end of the day, I think that Andrew Garfield was a great Spider-Man, I enjoyed aspects of all of his movies, and I think that if you tether those movies to the universe they've built thanks to Venom, Venom 2, Morbius, the upcoming Craven the Hunter, the Madam Web movie, and more, I think you're going to give those movies more value, and I think people are going to be more excited to go see them. Especially if Sony's endgame plan is going to be Spider-Man versus Venom. And speaking of Venom, we had Donny Cates in the studio, and he told us an amusing anecdote regarding his wedding, 
and how Venom made a surprise cameo appearance. When I was getting married, I would put up like pictures of like Megan's in her in her beautiful dress and like yeah. showing like you know pictures of me and Matthew in our tuxes and stuff like that. And like people would like in the comments like ask me like who would win in a fight between Venom <laughs> or like they would be like they'd be like are you gonna have a Venom you know cake at your wedding and stuff. I'd be like, guys, no, fuck. I have a whole thing outside of this. Now, I will say this. Without my knowledge, the chef at the restaurant did make me a venom cake. Because, oh, hey! Because I think that he didn't know who we were and like why this restaurant was being completely shut down for us. Because we got married at Luca during the con there. Um, oh, cool. which I know goes against my whole I have a I have a life I know, this right? thing. <laughs> yeah. I know. But I, we were getting married on Halloween because we're nerds and um, Luca invited us to that show. And then I responded back to them. I was like, thank you for the invite. We're actually getting married here. And Megan and I were just going to go down to the courthouse. And they responded back with, well, if you come here, you can get married in city hall. The mayor will marry you. We'll shut down an entire restaurant for you. We'll pay for you to come out here. We'll pay for your wedding and we'll pay for your honeymoon. Holy shit. And I was like, yeah okay yeah fucking <laughs> let's go let's do that and so this like five-star restaurant in italy was completely shut down just for us and our wedding party and i'm sure the chef had no idea he was like is this is fucking matt damon here why right? is, why are we doing this you know yeah. and so i'm sure he like looked up who i was and if you google me venom obviously is the first thing that just like is everywhere and yeah. so when our cake came out it was like this like four layer thing and the bride and the groom on it were um me and venom and like <laughs> venom was like over to like the like the symbiote was overtaking it and that part was chocolate and it, when it came out, I just put my head in my fucking hands <laughs> and Rosenberg is next to me. And he's just like, this is the funniest fucking greatest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> it would react the exact same way, honestly. Now, another funny thing is I didn't even know that Matthew Rosenberg and Donnie Cates were amigos to that extent. But what's interesting about him bringing up Matthew Rosenberg is that Rosenberg came on our show off the rack on YouTube.com slash returns, usually on Monday nights. And he told us a little bit about his upcoming Wildcats comic book for DC Comics. If you are a 90s kid like me, you must be checking this series out, at least just to see where Wildcats is going. Now, I read this last night, but apparently Marvel Games announced a three-game partnership with EA, starting with Iron Man. These games promise to be developed for consoles and PC, and uh, also I've heard rumors about a Black Panther game. I'm sure you did too. It's not just a Black Panther game. I think it's a Black Panther Captain America crossover game, so that's kind of cool until you remember that it's for EA. And I don't know if it's just me, but I thought we were all on the same page that EA was shit and they made really crappy games. But apparently, as long as they're associated with IPs that we enjoy, we're willing to give them a chance over and over and over again. I will say that... Uh, what was it, that last Jedi game? I will say apparently Jedi Fallen Order was fun looking, and I know people enjoyed it. At least they enjoyed the story, and I think they liked the combat and the saber customizations and stuff like that. I know Tiffany enjoyed it a lot. You can watch her play it on twitch.tv slash comicpop or on Comic Pop Plays on YouTube. But I guess that beats Square making it, because I remember we were all really excited about Square Enix making an Avengers game, and then it freaking came out, and I guess that was that, huh? But I don't know. Every time I pick up an EA game, even when they're trying to mix things up, like that beautiful-looking X-Wing game that I found impossible to play. I don't know about you. Maybe it was just me. But it was a lot like back in the day when I would play that fully immersive Star Wars arcade game that was 
so amazing looking at the time and also fully immersive and you could play those extra bonus levels where you use the joystick like a lightsaber which was also really cool but then you go back and you see it again or you play it again and you realize that it was designed to eat dollars and that it was not nearly as fun as you remember maybe you were just excited about the idea that Star Wars was immersive again, that you could actually get into the cockpit and play Star Wars. That's at least what I look for in any Star Wars game. And I guess that's what I want in a Marvel game, right? I want a fully immersive experience. I want to feel like I'm Spider-Man. I think that's why the Sony Spider-Man game is so successful and why everyone enjoyed Miles Morales, despite the fact that it felt like a DLC for PlayStation Spider-Man. It looked good, and I did enjoy... I'm just saying it felt like a DLC campaign for the main Spider-Man game. I mean, I don't want them to break the mold. I mean, God forbid we get an Arkham Knight out of the Spider-Man franchise. No. But I guess that's what we want, right? We want a fully immersive Marvel superhero experience. And so we'll see how this Captain America Black Panther game comes out, if it was, in fact, a Captain America Black Panther game. But moreover, that we're getting this three-game partnership with EA. I mean, I, I can't imagine people getting too excited about the idea that they're making three new games, starting with Iron Man, especially given the fact that we have this kind of desire for an interconnected universe and it's just not possible they brought spider-man into the avengers game from square and it's not the same spider-man at all it's not like it wasn't fun but it certainly wasn't the same experience and it certainly wasn't a fun crossover experience where we got to see that spider-man in the avengers hell the mechanics weren't even the same and uh it showed so the other thing i want to talk about is actually a spoiler for the movie black adam so if you haven't seen it i do recommend that you check it out before we talk but the reality is the Rock, the studio, and the person involved in this discussion all spoiled it for you, so I guarantee you know what I'm about to talk about, and it's Henry Cavill returning as Superman. Now, I don't want to talk about Henry Cavill returning as Superman too much. I mean, the fact is, if you want my opinion about it, I liked Henry Cavill as Superman. I wish that he had a different director directing him as Superman, and... I wish there was more color, and I wish he could smile a little more, especially when he needs to be a signal of hope. And I think that Henry Cavill was sold a bill of goods when it came to him signing on to be Superman. I don't think he was expecting to play that Superman. And I think a big part of him returning as Superman is changing a significant portion of the approach towards Superman and maybe having a lot more creative control around the character. But since you probably have caught it because you are listening to a show about comic books and comic book movies and stuff, at the end of Black Adam, Superman appears, and when he does appear, they play the John Williams theme and not the Hans Zimmer theme or the Junkie XL reinterpretation of that theme. And it got people upset for some reason. Me, at this point, I'm like, I don't even know when this is supposed to take place. I don't know what the state of the DC cinematic universe is. So for me, it was just Superman appearing on screen and it was played by the guy who played him the last time. It meant nothing to me. And that's what happens when you don't take care to build your universe is just stuff happens and your expectations get lowered. So for when I saw Black Adam, I'm like, yeah, movie exists. You know, I don't really have an opinion one way or another because it doesn't have any bearing on future movies. I mean, if it does then I have a strong opinion about the movie, but I don't think it will because I don't think that there's a lot of cohesion. At least, I didn't think there was a lot of cohesion until they established James Gunn as the head of DC Films. But then again, he's going to have a lot of work to do and a lot of cleanup and a lot of realigning, and there's going to be some retcons, believe you me. But in the comments of either a Twitter thread or a Reddit post, there were some people that were really upset about the John Williams score. And that got me thinking because somebody mentioned, I don't remember who it was, it was probably some prominent TikToker or something, who mentioned that nobody under the age of 40 recognizes the John Williams theme. And I'm like, 
Is that true? That's what I want to know. And not necessarily asking, this is more of a rhetorical question, because I think that for Henry Cavill, that is the Superman theme. Even if Hans Zimmer wrote a great score for Man of Steel, I really do like that theme. And I really enjoyed that trailer that they put out for Man of Steel. I notoriously don't care for that movie, and I'm not here to debate the merits of Man of Steel. But I do want to point out when there are strengths apparent, and that includes the Zimmer theme. I have no problem with it whatsoever, but I'm surprised to hear that Cavill didn't really embrace that theme. Or at the very least, Cavill had an opinion and influence over which theme to use when his new Superman appeared, and it was the Williams theme. When I saw the Justice League in theaters and they played the Elfman theme for Batman when Ben Affleck's Batman came up, it felt weird. I don't know about anybody else, but it felt bizarre to hear Michael Keaton Batman's theme on a different Batman in a different universe doing very different things. I don't know if that's a bias or if that's just the incongruity of using random music for other things that aren't built for those things. Because I think themes and scores are so important for movies. Movies are not just a thing, a product, a bulletin board full of characters or post-it notes that describe the characters. It is a marriage of audio and visual mediums, all working in harmony to tell a story. Star Wars doesn't work without Williams. Lord of the Rings doesn't work without Shore. Raimi's Spider-Man doesn't work without Elfman. Hell, 2009 Star Trek doesn't work without Giacchino. I love that theme. Despite how I might feel about that universe, that theme slaps. And it would be weird if they used it in the Picard show. But if you ever hear me espouse about building a cinematic universe or what DC should do, you know that I'm one of those people who, if you've screwed something up so unrecognizably or so far beyond repair, you need to scrap it and start over. I think that it may not work to have the Williams theme on Henry Cavill because it's just not that Superman. I think that part of the reason why Superman Returns didn't work as well as it should have, and I love Superman Returns in its own way, there's a lot of things I don't like about Superman Returns. I don't like the fact that he's a kid. I don't like the idea of him not really doing much. I don't like the idea of him being so somber and miserable. I don't like the idea of him going back to Krypton. There's a lot of things I don't like. But the casting, the set design, the costuming, the score outside of the John Williams theme, a lot of things work about that movie. But maybe one of the biggest things that didn't work was trying to tie it in with a previously established franchise that is synonymous with the character while also being irrevocably separate from everything else because you can never go back to it. And when you're the third Superman in a three Superman movie franchise, you need to get a theme and you need to lean into it. And Zimmer's theme is as good as any. That said, I love the Williams theme. And I also understand what Cavill and company may have been trying to do when it comes to junking it for the Williams theme. I think that they're trying to say something to the audience, which is we're not doing what you think we're doing. You know, like if you think that Man of Steel 2 is next, you're going to be disappointed. And that could really be it. It could not be a disconnect or a misunderstanding. It's just a reaction to the fact that the universe that a lot of audience members fell in love with and got brought into the character as a result of are finding out slowly but surely that it's not going to come back. And... That's tough. I know. I've seen many a franchise that I love either disappear or be buried by its own inadequacies. 
I cite Serenity, Terminator, Star Trek, and DC. I feel like this is a teachable moment and more of a learning experience than it can be a disheartening one. And it's easy to go down the rabbit hole and get really discouraged. And it'd be very easy to just say, I'm done with movies and I'm done with comic books and I'm done with serialized fiction and franchises and IPs. And I'm sure Alan Moore would applaud you and clasp you on the shoulder and call you a young buck and be very proud of you. But the fact is, there's another way around this. There's a teachable moment here. When you find your favorite franchise has abandoned you, evaporated, or changed irrevocably, it's an opportunity for you to find something new to love or create something new that you love. Now, I'm not saying that it's feasible for everybody who loved the DCEU and the Snyderverse to simply go make something new or create their own DCEU, but I think it is healthy to create more than destroy. And so when we feel like we've been wronged or we've lost something, we tend to lash out. We tend to look for a scapegoat or someone to be angry about. But it is very therapeutic to create. I can tell you from experience, it is so rewarding to make something, to use the motivation of loss and build it into something productive. Doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like Batman, right? In essence, if you were to take your loss of the DCEU and channel it into something else, you're basically being Batman. So I'll give you an example, and it has nothing to do with our channel or our podcasting or anything like that, and I don't want this to seem like self-promotion, so I won't name the project that I did work on and is available out there, lest you think I'm using this as some ham-fisted method of self-promotion. But when it became abundantly apparent that the Firefly universe was over, after the abysmal failure of Serenity in theaters, and then the atrocious failure of Serenity in the direct home market, where I know some Blu-rays sold pretty well, but not enough to get a sequel, not enough to get another show, not enough for anything. But to say I was bummed would be an understatement. And it would have been easy to get mad at people like Alan Tudyk, who had other commitments, who was building a career. He has a huge career compared to when he was working on stuff like Firefly and Serenity. And he's the reason why Wash doesn't make it out of that movie alive. It's because he couldn't commit to a three-picture deal. Except, obviously, the irony is, there was never going to be a three-picture deal. Because that movie was never going to make enough money to warrant an extension of the franchise. And, not unlike today, it would have been really easy to get mad at the studio itself, like Universal, for botching the marketing of that movie, which they did, because Universal's really bad at marketing movies for some reason. But instead, I sat down and I thought about what I wanted to see. And I didn't want to create fan fiction, I wanted to create something that felt like it was authentic and might mean something to someone someday. And knowing that I had a budget of nothing, I had to pursue other ends. It wouldn't be a TV show, it wouldn't be a movie, maybe it could be a comic book. Or, in my case back in the day, it would have been a webcomic, or a comic book that was broken down into a webcomic. And this is pre-webtoons, so unfortunately the option of making it into a webtoons was not available. And so I had family and friends build me a website, and we set up a whole thing, found artists, found colorists, found inkers, found letterers, and put together an entire project that resulted in a complete story. I sat down, I spent almost a year writing an entire beginning-to-end story about characters in space interacting the way I wanted to see people like that interacting, doing stuff that I wanted to see in some kind of visual medium. 
And we created that book out of nothing, using money I didn't have, using resources that I had to learn all from the top down. Not just me, I pulled in Tiffany, I pulled in other people that I knew personally, and we all had to learn the basics and the fundamentals of an entire industry that now doesn't even exist, practically speaking. It's certainly unrecognizable compared to the way it was going back almost 15 years. But we made this thing, and then we put it out, and we promoted it, and we went to conferences, and we went to seminars and webinars, and we talked to professionals, and we did our due diligence to get this thing into the hands or in front of the eyeballs of the audience that I believed existed that would want this thing. But the experience of writing this thing, of feeling like you were done, and then realizing you had to rewrite the entire ending, or the entire middle, or retool the entire beginning, and then having better pages and knowing they were better, sending those pages off to an incredible artist, getting character designs and new fresh pages, sending those pages that you fell in love with to an incredible colorist who made you fall in love with them all over again in a brand new way that made you so excited you could barely sleep because you thought about posting another page the next day. There are few experiences quite like being creative, expressing that creativity, seeing it come to light, and putting it out into the world. The after experiences, hitting the pavement, doing all the legwork, promotion, marketing, all that stuff, that's all business stuff. That's not supposed to be fun. And for some people it is, and they find their calling that way. But the experience of losing something that you felt represented a part of you, and then taking that feeling and channeling it into something that became implicitly yours and getting to watch it grow and expand and evolve into something new and something that is actually better than when you came up with the idea in the first place. There's nothing like it. And I solicited so many different websites, blogs that don't exist, news organizations that still do exist, just begging them to read this thing. In the end, we lasted long enough to post every single page of the comic and then stop. At that point, we knew this is as far as the road goes. The biggest thing that happened was a pretty well-respected entertainment science fiction website wrote a pretty complimentary article about it. The roads that you forge will almost inevitably lead to new and exciting places, and sometimes the new and exciting places that you experienced on the road to your destination were the reason to do it in the first place. It isn't always about fame and fortune. It's about why you did it in the first place, and where you ended up as a result of it. In many ways, making that comic led me here, and it's great here. I love it here, and I have no regrets, nor do I have any lingering resentment about a franchise that no longer has any relevance, that has proven itself to no longer have any relevance. And you'll see some pockets of resistance, some attempts to reinvigorate the franchise, but it never really gets its luster back after a certain amount of time. It's why I don't think that the Williams theme associated with Cavill's Superman really works, but I also get why he pushed for it, and I really get why people are upset, because people are analytical by nature. They are able to see patterns and metaphors, and they look deep within something, and they say, that represents something else, even if it isn't, even if it's just a shadow on the surface of Mars that looks like a face. So I can see people imagining that the theme represents more than just Cavill's nostalgia for that theme. And I think it does. I think it represents that Cavill wants a new beginning 
while also hearkening back to things that embody the character that he grew up on. And for current fans of the DC movie universe, I think it represents a final nail in the coffin for a franchise that brought them into the superhero world. But it doesn't have to be, if you don't want it to be. But listen, you're probably pulling into work right now, so I'm gonna let you go, but I want to thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Have a great day, keep reading, and happy belated Halloween. (laughs) 